0: We looked at a lot of the top asset allocation strategies in history, but there was one that was motivated by the Talmud and it's like 2000 years old. And it has a quote in it and I'm going to murder it, but it says something along the lines of let every man invest a third in business, a third in land and a third keep in reserve. And that's actually a pretty good investing portfolio. Now the modern interpretation is something like, um, a third in stocks, businesses or private public, whatever a third in land, so real assets, commodities, real estate, uh, tips perhaps, um, and lastly, a third in reserve, that's kind of like bonds, you know? Um, Now, what we'll get into is a much more modern interpretation of that, uh, but that's a pretty good starting point. Welcome to Excess Returns, where we
1: focus on what works over the long-term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor.
2: Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital.
1: Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with Meb Faber, co-founder and chief investment officer of Cambria Investment Management, to discuss his approach to managing his personal portfolio and investments. Meb is the author of numerous investing books and a prolific writer and podcaster, and has been writing about his personal investing strategy for a number of years as a way to maintain transparency with his investors and followers. We talk to Meb about what he is seeking from his investments, the asset classes and exposures in his portfolio, the investments in his own ETFs, use of trend following, the importance of non-US stock exposure, and much more. While each investor's personal portfolio is unique to their own situation, looking at the investment strategy and the investing mindset of others like Meb's may be helpful. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Cambria's Meb favor. Hey, Meb, how are you? Thanks for joining us today.
0: Great to be here, friends. Good to see you guys.
1: This is going to be a little different for you. Usually you're in the interviewer seat, and so we've kind of flipped the script on you here, but we appreciate you uh, uh, joining us on... Jack and I have talked for a while about having people, investors we respect, come on and actually talk about how they manage and look at their personal portfolio and their own investment strategy. And we thought that you would be a great guest to have because you've talked about and written about pretty extensively how you think about um, managing, positioning um, your portfolio, both you know different investment environments and for the long term. So. Um that's what we're going to sort of discuss today we're going to peel back the onion on Ned Faber's um
0: investment strategy can, can we can we use a different analogy peel back the onion sounds like my portfolio is going to be smelly it's going to make you cry like oh. something
1: better
0: <laughs> it might when we get into we'll a peel be, back fleet of treasures box of jewels and gold they
1: don't. <laughs> You know but in the in your most recent article where you're writing about this, you you said something or you pointed out something that I think we wanted you just start out, you know, kind of have up front here and that your portfolio is specific to you and your goals, your return expectations, what you're shooting for, the the risk tolerance that you have. And so as we sort of get into some of this and you talk about this and explain, you know how you're positioned, you know, no one should really be taking this and trying to copy it or, try to implement it exactly as you have, because this is specific to you and sort of how you want to be invested. Um, so just want to kind of. That's
0: what you think. I think everyone should copy my portfolio. That's perfect. <laughs> there's, there's a great, there's a great John Bogle quote where he's talking about, and obviously Bogle indexed and, uh, did only us indexing. And he's like, look, is this the perfect portfolio? No, he's like, it's perfect portfolio for me. He's like, and will this be the best performing portfolio? No, but I can guarantee you there is infinite that are worse. So uh, that's the way to think about it. I, I like to think there's infinite portfolios worse than mine. When you um,
1: think about your investments and you think about your goals and what you want to achieve with your investments, what are you, I mean, what are you saving for? Is it? Are you saving for retirement? Are you saving it to leave to your
0: children, how do you kind of look at your long-term investing goals? So, uh, I want to be on that first rocket sh- spaceship to Mars with Elon. That's what I, I what's the ticket going to be like a hundred million. Um, I, I think, um, there's a couple things and these obviously can change throughout time. You know, a a 20 year old me is going to have a different answer to this than a 40 year old me and 60 and hopefully 80, 100, 120 year old me. Um, and, uh, laying the foundation, I think is, is really important because on FinTwit and elsewhere, writing academic papers and books, like we tend to argue like the final 5% because a lot of the, the base case, the foundation is assumed and, um, a good example will be. You know, I I think over a certain income and net worth, like you want to get to that freedom level where you have freedom and capacity to choose your own path, those old choose your own adventure books, right? Um, and I think that's important for a lot of people and that number, whomever you ask is, is different. The challenge of course, and you see this in all your neighbors, all your friends, people that, uh, come into money, people that bought Bitcoin at a hundred. Uh, on and on you adjust, there's the sort of hedonic treadmill of income and wealth and, and that I think is, is a problem for a lot of people. Uh, and then you see all the polls is like, how much money do you need to retire? How much money do you need to be happy? And it's always like twice as much as everyone currently has. Um, the good news is I'm, I'm a, I'm a very content human. Uh, you know, I, I while I work in the financial world, it doesn't necessarily, um, I'm at the point where I feel uh, a great deal of contentment and peace and freedom. And I think, um, you know, the, a lot of the literature shows that, uh, you need to get to like that 75 K amount of income, like, like the happiness curve really plateaus after that with inflation printing, maybe that's going to be a hundred K, but let's just round somewhere in there. And then above that, it's, it's sort of gravy. And then it gets into Jay Z problems or excuse me, biggie problems. Um, both of them, uh, but, but more money causing more headaches. And so, um, a lot of people who invest and get wealthy, this is one of the key things you have to avoid too. And and William Bernstein talks a lot about this. He's like, once you get to a certain amount of wealth, and this means different levels, different people, um, you've won the game. And he says, you don't have to keep playing. He's like, once you win the game, you don't have to keep playing. And one of the biggest mistakes people make is they get wealthier, super rich and they still risk it all. And that to me is insane. And so you see example after example, after example, wealthy people that have all this leverage and crazy concentration, and then boom, the regime shifts and it's all gone, not like part of it gets gone, like all of it's gone. And so, uh, part of the wealth building, what we call, we wrote this four part series Last year during, or excuse me, last year, it's 2022. Now during the pandemic 2020, we wrote a four part series called get rich portfolio, the stay rich portfolio, which is interesting, particularly with what's going on right now with interest rates and bonds, um, uh, how I invest, which is what we're going to talk about today. And the last was investing at a time of Corona that was specific to some opportunities back in March, 2020. Um, but, but part of those buckets mentally getting rich and staying rich are different for a lot of people. And you see this a lot with business owners, they build their career, they do this business, they sell it. And then all of a sudden they have all this money and and kind of the life they had before and the life they had after the, um, mental approach, the accounting and even the portfolios, uh, are very different and this gets on to spending too, so any long-winded answer, which is what you get with me, but basically, you know, I think about, um wealth as freedom, uh, you know, and we talk a lot about bemoan the fact they don't teach personal finance or investing or money in schools, which I think is a tragedy, but I think that narrative is changing. You're starting to see a lot more States adopting that curriculum. Um, but really reframing, you know, this concept of money as, as freedom and wealth as the ability to do, uh, kind of what you want, live where you want, make the life decisions you want and not uh, be beholden to, uh, you know, um, be structured in a way where you're forced to make uh, 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 opportunities, turn down opportunities, or make life decisions you don't want to.
1: Yeah, you had a great quote in that article, which was, remember that money is only a means to an end. It's there to help you achieve your life goals and happiness, which I think pretty much captures everything you're saying here.
0: Yeah, you know, and the reason we started writing this post is, you know, there's tens of thousands of money managers out there. We all go on CNBC, go on, uh, Twitter and everywhere. And people talk about, you know, why you should buy our funds and why you should do this, that, and the other. And, you know, um, no one, usually the anchors or people never ask, well, okay, well, you know, how do you invest your own money or or do you actually put money in your own fund and the, the sorry, sad state of affairs. And this will surprise a lot of listeners is that Morningstar tracks how much portfolio managers invest in their own fund. And over half, and in some cases it's up like 80% plus, um, have nothing invested in their fund or nothing meaningful. And to me, that was like really offensive and confusing for a long time. And then I joked, well, a lot of these portfolio managers know their funds are are garbage and expensive and tax efficient, and no one should be buying them anyway. That's why they don't buy them. But I said, look, you know, then we'll get to this. I, I, I think, uh, you have to be invested if you're a portfolio manager in your own funds and strategies, but also then I took a step further and we just, I don't even know, five, six, seven years ago, said, oh, look, I'm going to disclose how I invest across all my assets. Um, not because going back to the beginning of the conversation that you should exactly copy it, but because one, I think it's useful to think about how a professional does it, but two, give you the transparency of an investor uh, who does this for a living and he's not just telling you one thing and then doing something else, but actually is eating his own cooking. Uh, and I'm getting to be a pretty decent cook, actual cooking, not money management, um, not great, but, but good. I like to experiment.
2: What's your, what's your best dish?
0: You know, so ready for a 10 minute, um, uh, diatribe as a quant listeners, I'm a rules-based investor. And so. Uh, I said, you know, recipes are just formulas, right? I mean, okay. There's the final 5% that's art. Okay. Like you're doing some foams, you're doing some weird, uh, highly technical. My family's big into, um, is it cake show on Netflix right now, which if you haven't seen is highly addictive and totally mindless. Um, but, uh, but there is an art if you're a certain level, but for 90%, it's just a recipe. and And if you, most. Chefs should be able to follow that recipe. So we did a fun thing the other day where all the recipe sites, for some unknown reason, have a very poor interface, user interface where you can't search them. You can't see the ratings. You can be like, Hey, I, I want this to be gluten-free or I want to cook chicken tonight, but that's about it. So I paid someone in Poland to go scrape the internet of the top 20 invest, uh, cooking sites. It's like New York times, food.com on and on. And I said, I want only the best highly rated recipes would that have like 10,000 reviews. And so we came up with a list of like 20, uh, and we did an article about this. I forget what it's called, like the the ultimate recipe book or something. You guys can get a, a link to it. Um, and what we found was, uh, it's like, uh, you know, the Netflix ratings. I was like, I don't care about getting like the perfect documentary rated hundred, like nobody actually wants to watch that. Nobody wants to eat that. That's going to be the foam dish. But what I want is like the world's greatest lasagna, you know, and and there's a lot of crowd pleasers. And so we cooked a lot of them and I'll tell you the number one, uh, one that people responded to, um, was a New York times. Um, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna crush the, uh, uh, chef's name. So I'm gonna Google it real quick. It's the New York times, um, Bolognese, uh, and, um, the Marcella Hazan's Bolognese. This thing is, you can't make this and people not be like, oh my God, this is the best thing i ever had. It has nutmeg in it. Uh, anyway, so one day when I'm older and hopefully at peace with my wealth and and career, uh, we'll do the quant cookbook, the best recipes in the world. Uh, so try that one. Let me know how it comes out. Nice.
1: We will. Um, so back to the um portfolio here um how let's let's sort of get into this with your specific investments how would you just at a high level classify on um, your approach to managing your portfolio if you were to try to sum it up you know what is the overall top level sort of top view approach and then we'll get into some of the specific buckets and the way that you look at things
0: um I would like to say it's quantitative, but also, um, you know, I I think it's important for a lot of investors to have an element of kindness to themselves when putting this together, um, because it's, it's a easy seduction to try to optimize it to like the third decimal point, but really it's like a bowl of soup. You know, you're putting all these elements together and whether you mentally bucket it a certain way or not, you end up, it's all in the same pot anyway. And so for me. Uh, I like things that have stood the test of time and going back, we did this global asset allocation book. It's free to download online. We looked at a lot of the top asset allocation strategies in history, but there was one that was motivated by the Talmud and it's like 2000 years old. And it has a quote in it and I'm going to murder it, but it says something along the lines of let every man invest a third in business, a third in land and a third keep in reserve. And that's actually a pretty good investing portfolio. Now the modern interpretation is something like, um, a third in stocks, businesses or private public, whatever a third in land. So real assets, commodities, real estate, uh, tips, perhaps. Um, and lastly, a third in reserve. That's kind of like bonds, you know, um, now what we'll get into is much more modern interpretation of that. Uh, but that's a pretty good starting point in a, in a close cousin of that. Is what i call the global market portfolio the global market portfolio is the ultimate index portfolio technically it's the only index portfolio the truly passive index and that's if you just go out and buy all the assets in the world and this is now this is publicly traded only but it but if you were able to replicate the world it's roughly half stocks and half bonds and of that it's half u.s and half foreign now most of our u.s friends don't invest in foreign anything, really, they may invest a smidge in foreign stocks. They certainly don't invest in foreign bonds, but that's also a pretty good starting point. It doesn't, uh, have enough in real assets partially because a lot of the real assets, um, there's two big categories we'll get to that aren't well represented in the global market portfolio, that's farmland and single family housing. Uh, most of that's private, but, but, but that broad approximation to me is a pretty good starting point for the way that I want to view how I invest all my money.
1: You had mentioned, um, a few minutes ago, the two different buckets, the get rich bucket and the stay rich bucket. Can can you just sort of explain
0: the difference between those? I mean, it's kind of obvious, but yeah. So, you know, this is particularly, um, you know, uh, ties in for me specifically, but a lot of listeners too, as, as a business owner. Elon Musk had a, had a tweet years ago where he was basically like, look, if Tesla and, uh, space, SpaceX go bankrupt, like, so should I. And he was meaning he was talking about skin in the game, but he was talking about, uh, his leverage to these businesses he's running. And we start off the post by saying, look, Cambria is my asset management business. You know, we manage, uh, 12 ETFs and growing and depending on how you mentally bucket that that's that's somewhere between i don't know 50 percent and 99 percent of my net worth and um the challenge for that is that uh if you try to incorporate that incorporate that to the portfolio um it it gets to be what i call like a ski chairlift debate or um discussion psychologically like should you consider that within your portfolio or just mentally bucket it to the side because it has the very real chance of potentially declining or or going to zero as many entrepreneur activities do. And so we said, okay, look, we'll acknowledge that this is there, but we're going to put it over here. And to me, like that's sort of the get rich kind of bucket. Um, most entrepreneurs, uh, can, can sympathize with the agony and ecstasy of running a business. Like it's tough, right? Like there's, there's, we often say the best. Um, compliment you can give someone in that world is just, you survive you, your business exists the next day because many don't. And if you go back and look at a lot of like the top stock charts from decades past, you see that, uh, you know, a lot of the names are unfamiliar to today. Uh, it's Amazon and apple today, but not wasn't Amazon and apple 50 years ago. Anyway. Um, and so let's, if you put that aside for a second. Uh, and then you get to actually say, okay, well your actual portfolio, what do you do? And so for me, it kinda, it does go with that little bit of Talmud esque, uh, you know, methodology and so, um, and this has evolved over the years a bit. Um, one of the biggest evolutions that started for me in 20, uh, 14 was when I started this and I very publicly kind of documented this on the blog and on Twitter and on, um podcast in real time as it was happening, as I said, you know, an area I would like to get educated about more is, is startup investing. And, uh, it's interesting to me. It seems to be like, it's more and more accessible at this point. I want to pay some tuition and start to dip my toe in this world. And I said, look, if I lose all my money, I'm going to be okay with that. I said that I wouldn't actually be okay with it, but I said that I would be okay with it mentally. Like that was my expectation. Um. If I match the S and P amazing, and if anything beats that gravy, but I want to start to learn how this process works. And so fast forward, almost a decade later, uh, I've invested in over 300 startups, um, and, uh, that portfolio has grown to be a much bigger part of my pie than it, than it was in the beginning. And it has some interesting characteristics. Um, one of the biggest takeaways in all of investing, particularly with equities And it's interesting because if you talk to private investors, they really understand this public investors, I think kind of get it, uh, but not as much. And a lot of private don't think the public investors get this is this concept of power laws and the really big, massive returns. And so what that means is, uh, you know, how many investments listeners, if you bought and that sucker doubles, I mean, we are dancing. We're thinking about buying a happy hour tonight. We're talking about the new apartment we want to buy in Florida, or maybe vacation. We're going to go on. We're going to buy a new house on and on, right? Like a double that's incredible. Forget like triple or quadruple. My God, like we're, we're telling our neighbors at that point, how smart we are. But if you look back in the history of public stocks, uh, and the and binder study, and there's others that have, that have come out. We have some links in our posts, but. You know, virtually all the returns of an index over time an S and P anything similar are driven by these really massive winners, not doubles or triples, but the 10 Xers, the hundred Xers, the thousand Xers. So Apple and Amazon, uh, Walmart's the, the, uh, I was going to say IBM, that's a terrible example, but at one point it was, but these companies that have gone from 200 million to 2 billion to 20 billion to 200 billion. And the vast majority of stock returns are driven by that. People understand that in startup investing, the beauty of startup investing, uh, is, is twofold one. And I used to think this was a bug or a negative part of investing. And now I think it's a feature is that, you know, the ideal scenario and this is very Buffett esque, of investing in stocks is you buy it and you hold it for 10, 20 years. You go back to some of these books, uh, and concepts on hundred baggers, uh, Chris Myers got a great book about this topic that, that walks through a lot of these hundred bagger companies and public stocks in history. Most people in the Robin hood, you know, era want those returns today. Like I'm, I'm looking for these hundred baggers, you know, this week, but in reality, it usually takes like a decade or two these compounders that compound at 20% for two decades. The problem is most of us can't hold them that long or won't emotionally. You know, the example we gave was Apple, which our largest and oldest fund held from 2013, all the way to 2022. We actually just recently sold it. I was very sad about this. It's like, you know, put sending a kid to college or something. Um, but if you held Apple since the eighties, it declined by 75% in every decade, except for 2010s. I think, I don't think it could decline. So the challenge of holding that compounder is really hard. And Amazon, my my God, media loves to talk about that. That sucker's declined by 95% at one point. So the beauty of private markets is you can't sell them. Like you buy a a private investment. You're stuck with that sucker. You you may be stuck with it forever. Um, but that to me is a good thing. Like you make the decision to invest, you better be certain. And then you have no choice to sell it. It's either going to get acquired. It's going to go out of business or it's going to IPO. And that's about it. Um, so I think that's actually a feature, not a bug for investors today, because a lot of investors can't storm holding a stock. And so, um, the second is the tax benefits. We don't need to spend an hour on that, but listeners, Google QSBS, I think there's some very real tax benefits of, of startup investing, but, but the biggest about this power law is that I think it's easier when you start from a market cap of 10 million to a hundred extra investment than if you started at 10 billion to hundred exit, right? Um, and so this applies to small caps and micro caps too. If you wait in that world, uh, I think there's a lot of opportunity in public markets, but I think that the math works in your favor just because of size. So that to me has always been like this sort of get rich bucket of equities of businesses and owning those, uh, to me is, is where, um, you can really make a lot of the life-changing wealth. Uh, I think it's also depending on your perspective, a very much stay rich bucket too, over time particularly with inflation. Um, But, uh, but the the mental bucketing, that was a really long winded answer on this topic. But uh, that's the starting point for me. Yeah, no, I, I think that the
1: like the natural lockup is a good and interesting point. Like I tend to value liquidity a lot. So, you know, I'm sort of like, I'm hesitant to have my money locked up. But if you're comfortable with that, you know, the startup route Like you said, you can't really sell it. And, you know, hopefully some of those end up being, you know, really big winners. Well,
0: what you said is important because the, the liquidity and you have to this is why you need to plan ahead of time. And this is the mistake I see almost every startup investor make is they start and they're like, oh my God, this is so much fun. This is so exciting. And then fast forward six months, they've put, they've invested all their money and then they're just stuck and they're like, oh my God, I shouldn't have done that. Why did I do that? Now I have no money. I have no cash. And so to me... Having done it for eight years, you know, the plan we talk about is look, you mentally bucket and understand how much you plan on investing and you do not exceed that goal. So if you're to say I'm going to invest t- 10 companies this year and the beauty of angel and other startup sites like we funders is, is you can do it as low as a thousand bucks. Say I'm going to invest in 10 companies, a thousand bucks. I'm not going to exceed that next year. I'm going to invest in uh, 10 to 20 companies at $2,000 and on and on. And then once you get to about five to seven years, it's like a vintage of wines. Like they start maturing at different times. Um, some of them go out of business. You know, the, the, the math is probably at least half will be zeros. Uh, and so they start to mature at different times, but the worst mistake is you get a bunch of illiquid stuff. And this applies to houses. This applies to anything that's a liquid. And then it forces you to do something you don't want to do. That is the worst possible scenario in all of investing, uh, is you start to get these margin calls. This applies with leverage. This applies with anything, but concentration and illiquidity. We saw this with the endowments in 2008 and 2009, they got upside down because they had all these private investments and they didn't think through, Hey, we need to walk through what happens in a 50% decline in our portfolio and CalPERS. These guys are just asking for it because they ran a simulation that Corey Hofstein was talking about where they said, our expected decline is 20%. And I was like, whoa, 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 you guys need to two or three X that because that's what's happened in the past and uh, the last thing you ever want to do in investing is being forced. So this leans towards the, the argument that you should always have some cash and liquidity and rainy day for, for, um, you know, the ability to live the life you want.
2: You, you mentioned AngelList, is that primarily those types of places? Is that primarily how you've done the startup investing?
0: I think it's the best one out there. Uh, and there's some reasons for that on the way that it's been structured and built. Uh, I advise all people who are starting say, look, play at home for a while, sign up for every single syndicate and just start to check out the deals. I've reviewed, I think it's 6,000 companies at this point, um, and uh just start to understand and kind of like play at home pencil and paper start small the worst mistake everyone makes is they start big way too early and they just spend all their money they they blow their their budget so start small i mean there's some others uh as well that are that are developing republic uh, we mentioned we Angelus is nice because they actually have people bringing the deals that they have some responsibility as opposed to the platforms it's a sort of different um incentive because they could just theoretically bring everything out there so anyway just just start to get exposed and we did a um we did a post on this you guys can link to called journey to 100x that talks about this really really in depth but but equities is really to me in that sort of the same bucket here of of the get rich portfolio
2: in terms of like your experience with the startups has it been kind of the the way you'd expect venture capital to be which is you've had these very few firms, you know, driving most of your return and you've had, I mean, have you had some zeros on the other side? I mean, how how is sort of the breakdown between the successes and the failures looked so far?
0: Um, Two caveats. One is I'm fully aware, I'm not delusional, that the entirety of the time that I've been angel investing has been during a bull market. So I'm aware of that. That having been said, the distribution of returns have played out as expected. Uh, you know, I think like, we'll talk about trend following later, but you know, certainly I'm a, I'm a trend follow at heart and, uh, I'm okay with a high percentage of losers. A lot of people don't like that, that they really struggle with this by the way. So this is why I err on the side of higher numbers. So if you're going to do a portfolio and only one or two determine your, all your returns, you better not be investing in 10 companies, one or 2%. Uh, or let's say it's 5% determine all your returns. You can invest in 10 companies. Cause the odds of you missing that one are pretty high. You can invest in 20 companies. I think a minimum you need to invest in is 50. And so when I started, I said, I want to get to a hundred. And then I said, oh, well, actually I want this to be a rolling situation where I want to hit 500 investments. And then at that point it'll sort of be like a, a rolling retirement, you know, where some of these will go public and continue to grow. Ideally, I never sell any of them. Um, But it's to the point where I now have had 20, 40, 60 baggers. There's some 100 baggers on paper, but I don't like to, you know, count my chickens, Kenny Rogers style. I don't want to count my chips until until the game's over, they go public. Um, But uh, one of the most interesting takeaways for me is they all pass the invest criteria for me, and I have certain criteria. You know, I want to see it be an actual business that's generating around a million or two of revenue. Uh, the hardest for me personally is sort of this, just an idea precede where it's like this amazing idea, but, uh, that's the highest failure rate because they don't have a real business or what we call product market fit. And so, but the interesting part is if you look to the correlation, probably to my initial enthusiasm, I don't know how accurate that, uh, regression would be on how much med enthusiasm I had in the beginning to their eventual success. I think one of the best investments, um, on paper was like a French smoothie company, essentially, um, called Kenco that, uh, has done amazing. But like, had you told me that five years ago, I would have said, huh, I doubt that, you know, um, but like three of the top five, I think have been XUS, us, which is also interesting. I would not have expected that. So, um but in general it it has played out similar to to my hopes uh but um but i've seen a lot of bad behavior too and so as you and not by me meaning like people taking license with expectations stuff that if you tweeted out as a uh, etf manager or public fund manager you'd be like locked up the next day uh so there's a lot more uh Latitude with, I think what people can say one more, um, I think that's interesting to note is you got to remember no such thing as inside information and in, in, in private investing, right? So if you, let's say you invest in a company at the seed and they just blow up, they are just crushing it. They go from this seed, they find product market fit. They're doing 10 million in revenue and they come back to their investors and say, oh my God, we, this is happening. Uh, would you like to invest more? Well. That's something that you're not going to get really in public markets. Cause if you do, they got to disclose to everyone in which case the stock immediately reacts, but in private markets, that's a feature that I think it also informs your day-to-day business and then your public market investing too. So for, as an example, I wrote about this a couple of years ago and I was like, you guys, Africa is having a moment. Like these startups are not only, uh amazing, but they're garnering real traction and you're starting to see the M and a happen on public markets and they're getting to real size. Like the, the, and then you have seen that actually transpire over the last couple of years, and now you're actually seeing in other areas like Pakistan and Latin America, which eventually will inform the public companies and markets too, because a lot of those, uh, stock markets are stinking cheap. I think Pakistan might be the cheapest company in the world. If you include frontier, uh, uh. uh cheapest country in the world, if you include frontier
2: markets. Um, and looking at the, the pie chart in your article, you, you seem to have a really interesting problem in that because you've done really well in the startups, like they continue to become more and more, I think it was up to like 40% of your portfolio. And I'm just wondering, like, as a thought process, how would you, if that continues happening, how do you think about like the rest of your portfolio in that context? And I mean, would you feel like you need to adjust the rest of your portfolio? Or would you maybe just take your exits as you get them and maybe move them more into public vehicles? I and mean, how, how would you think about that?
0: Yeah, I mean, the nice thing, and we'll get to this in a minute, um, about this whole process that we tell investors about being kind to yourself is like, we're all living life, you know, and life happens and things come up, I don't know, pandemics, world wars, children, breakups, marriages, death, all, all these life events that that us humans go through. Uh and so I had like some some in the last couple of years, you know, we we finally bought a house, which uh longtime listeners to my show would know uh I've been somewhat uh loath to do. Uh, you know, I um uh see the romance of home ownership, but as soon as we bought the house, I also noticed the downsides such it like started raining and we walked in the house and there's literally mushrooms growing out of the interior of the house, the walls. Uh, So I see the downside too. Um, but that fits in that sort of real asset bucket. And for me, a long time is i had had, uh, farmland. So my family comes from on my dad's side of farming background in Kansas and Nebraska. And so I'd always held farmland one is I think it is a great investment and it's funny because if you talked about this in the last five years, it's sort of crickets. And all of a sudden in a world of 8% inflation with wheat and corn now trading at like 10 bucks and copper at five bucks and oil at who knows what hundred bucks plus, um, all of a sudden, that's a very real, interesting discussion to have, whereas it wasn't before, you know, Bill Gates recently got disclosed, well, we'll see how long it lasts to be <laughs> this divorce is happening, but as the largest farm, farmland holder in the U S. But historically an amazing asset class. And so. But my, and, but I actually sold some farmland last year, uh, in part to help purchase this, this home. And so there is the very real quantitative mindset, but with the knowledge that, you know, life, life events happen. And so talking about the angel investments, you know, I expect them because I've been doing it long enough in in many cases to mature. And so, you know, some of these companies are going public, some of them, uh, you know, getting acquired, some of them on and on. And so I would like to redeploy part of that back into my um my stay rich bucket which is sort of the cash safe money which we'll get to in a minute which is like all of our etfs i have a very non-consensus view here which we can talk about uh but it's that sort of recycling rebalancing sort of consideration now however If, uh, you know, the equity market implodes and startup valuations get crushed and all of a sudden we start seeing all these opportunities, like I'll, I'll consider, you know, like I, I would certainly, uh, like to continue to invest in, in startups, uh, as the opportunity presents itself in the last year or two, a lot of the valuations have, have really come up, but you know, you gotta, you gotta take a full cycle approach to this. So my belief is that I'll continue to invest but a lot of the proceeds will start to move back towards my stay rich bucket, which is uh, which which is a little light at the moment.
2: You, I wanna get back to something you mentioned earlier. You talked about sort of putting Cambria aside when you look at this asset allocation, but you, you have sort of a unique situation that we do as well in that like a lot of what we do, like our income, the value of our business is tied to the stock market. And for us particularly also maybe tied to value and how well value performs. And so like, there's two sides of me on this. One side is going back to what you talked about earlier, you know, we need to eat our own cooking. I should be invested in the stock market. I should be invested in value. But the other side of me thinks maybe I should have like, you know, a bunch of FANG stocks, like coupled with, you know, a tail risk system or something to hedge where most of my value is in this business. So I'm wondering, how do you sort of think about Cambria when you build your own portfolio?
0: Well, this is a fun uh, topic because it's good that at least we're having this discussion because most don't, you know, one of the biggest mistakes in all of investing in life is is like quadruple leveraging yourself to an outcome and so a classic example that all the personal finance writers have written about forever but people still do is they have their human capital exposed to a business let's call this business let's make up a name enron okay they then invest all their time you know associated this business then they invest the, the company 401k in the stock of the business right like they're just quadruple leveraging down and down and down then that business goes out, uh, you know, goes bankrupt and, and investments go to zero. You've spent your entire life and in, in investments all in one bet. It's like you put it all on, on the roulette dial on, on number 15 and it hit something else. So we often tell financial advisors and people listening to this, but starting to think about it, say, look, you know, you're four times leveraged the stock market. You don't even know it. First of all. Um, your business, let's assume they're, uh, a, a fee based advisor. So most of your portfolios are allocated to stocks. And so most of your stocks are in the U S so stock market goes down 50%. Your revenue just went down in half. Second is you invest your own money in stocks. Third is your clients. Um, when the market goes down, they freak out as we know, clients often do. And many of them will panic and sell. And lastly, if you don't own your own company, uh, the company may fire you, you know, because they have to downsize and they have no money. So you're like quadruple leveraged stock. So there's an argument to be made that not only should you not be investing in, uh, not only should you hedge that, there's an argument to be made, you shouldn't own any at all. And so these start to get into philosophical discussions. Um, so personally, um, I think there's ways to mitigate that. Obviously we'll, we could start to get into what I consider to be this sort of, uh, optimal equity portfolio approach and to me, or, uh, just asset allocation approach and to me is to be mindful of that. And so, uh, most investors double down on things like their geography. So U S investors, this home country bias, they put most of their money in the U S Japanese investors do it. Brits do it, Aussies do it, Chinese do it, Russians do it. And, it, and US investors continue to justify it. It's like my least popular Twitter diatribe is, is talking about this topic. But if you ask somebody from Russia, do you think it was a good idea? You put 95% of your money in Russian stocks. Well, probably not Greece, Italy, UK has struggled for forever. Um, but they justified in the US, which is odd. So, but also people do it by geography. People in the Northeast invest their, most of their money in finance. People in Texas and energy. People in California tech. It's just crazy. You couldn't make this up. And so to diversify, as you think about a portfolio and going back to the global market portfolio at its core, half U.S. stocks, half foreign, half bonds, um, half half uh, half U.S. half foreign, half stocks, half bonds. The buy and hold portfolio is a great portfolio over time. The biggest problem with the buy and hold portfolio is it. Craters, usually when something terrible is going on in the world, 2008, 2009 financial crisis, uh, pandemic on and on world war this year and, and U S stocks and bonds are going down. So if you think about it for a minute, theoretically, you should want your portfolio to do well in times of stress, because what happens in times of stress, A stress, unemployment goes from 3% to 15%. Right. The economy goes into recession. You're going to lose your job on and on. And so hedging these risks would make a lot of sense. And so buy and hold while a great portfolio and we have a buy and hold ETF, um, while a great portfolio over time, I don't know that it does a great job of, uh, protecting investors through one of the major challenges they have, which is simply psychologically getting through the bad times enduring, making it to the finish line. And so, um, you know, that that's a struggle for many, cause they're missing key, key parts of the portfolio. Obviously we do tilts like value. We do tilts like momentum. Um, we have a big real asset chunk that probably higher than almost anyone in the world has other than our Aussie and Canadian friends, maybe. Um, but a lot of people said that's not something they're interested in. And all of a sudden here we are with real rates at minus five and inflation at eight. Um. On the flip side of that, you know, is, is my trend following <clears throat> exposure and background, which, you know, I think, um, is a great portfolio over time. I actually think it'll probably beat buy and hold, not by a mile, but by a little bit. I think it'll have lower volatility and drawdowns, but trend following is also hard. It goes through periods of suck, just like everything else does, whether an asset class or a strategy, and it's been fairly average to terrible, depending on how you implement it for the past decade. Here we are in 2022, and guess what? Trend following is having an amazing amazing year. Um, The problem with that portfolio is a lot of people struggle with looking different. So if the S and P is printing 20% a year, most people don't want to be different and it's hard for them. Um, And so on top of that trend following, if you're implementing it on your own, has a large amount of small losses. And so it's tough for a lot of people, Uh, but the combination of the two is brilliant. Uh, they, they work together and we call this Trinity concept um, because you kind of hedge both possible outcomes. You have this great buy and hold of of assets all around the world with tilts like value. And then you have this trend volume exposure that can help hedge the the end of times or certain times that just most traditional portfolios aren't hedged against, one being interest rates coming up, one being high inflation, one being uh, equities down big. And so we we put the two together and that's actually the disclosure in, in, um, this article is essentially what I do with all of my assets for the most part on, uh, the public investing side is this Trinity fund concept. Um, I add in a sprinkling of tail risk because I think, um, personally, the U S stock market is overvalued and looking at historically, uh, the U S market, it, it, from these valuation levels, you know, we're projecting on the market cap weighted basis to, to be a bagel for the next decade. So zero returns real, uh, really for, for the next 10 years, which wouldn't be a lot of fun, but, uh, but so it goes with markets. And so for me, I want exposure to hedge out that, uh, outcome because again, that impacts other parts of, of my life and business, uh, not just the public portfolio.
2: I want to ask you, you 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 had a you mentioned U.S. stocks being really expensive. You you had an interesting Twitter poll you did. I don't know if it was like a year ago or it was a while back. And I'm wondering how you would answer the same question you asked, which is you asked this question of people like, basically, if the cape on the U.S. market got to something like 100, would you still allocate to U.S. equities? And I, and I think the vast majority of people said, yes, they would. And I'm wondering, how do you think about that? I mean, do you just use trend following that if, if the trend didn't break, you would keep a- allocating to U.S. equities? Or, or is there a valuation where you might think, you know, U.S. equities are not something you'd want to invest in?
0: You know, the, that old question about like, who would you like to invest, uh, who would you like to invite to dinner? What, like what five guests and people are always like, you know, the Dalai Lama, Jesus. Um, I, Jack Bogle would be up there for me, the late Jack Bogle, because, um, he talked for a long time. He had this great equation. It's called the Bogle formula. It's very simple. It's it's a starting dividend yield plus earnings growth or dividend growth plus change in valuation. And you can come up with a pretty good expectation. Of us stocks and he showed it throughout history and does a good job of he wouldn't say forecasting but he he might would say coming up with expectation of what stocks would do and before he passed he's like look i think u.s stocks can do about four percent and then the market kept going up so now it's probably um you know down to, to close around zero now the challenge with that is that he would say well the behavior is to pro- you just buy and hold and you weather the storm and maybe you spend less and, and save more, but I would always like to ask him and say like, Jack, you know, at what point does common sense take over and you reduce your stock exposure when it gets crazy expensive? Is it a P ratio of 50, you know, in, in that survey you mentioned, uh, most people said they would continue to hold stocks, which is higher than they've ever been in history, including the late nineties, uh, internet bubble. Would it be a hundred? Which is what Japan hit in the eighties, in which case they had no returns for multiple decades, decades of no returns. You know, it just, it to me that like, doesn't check the common sense box. So that's who I would like to invite to dinner, Jack and, and bring him back just to ask him that one question. Um, but the interesting part is the challenge with expensive markets is they can keep going up. And so. We have one foot f- firmly in the value camp and one foot in trend following camp. And I always say my favorite is when those two, uh, Venn diagram boxes overlap. So you have something cheap that's going up or even better cheap, hated and going up. But if you just look at the U S market, bucket into four buckets, uptrend, downtrend, cheap, expensive, the best performing market in history, historically in the U S has been a cheap uptrend, not surprising. It does almost 20% a year. Uh, but the second best is an expensive uptrend, which is a little counterintuitive, but essentially the trend dominates, but the worst is an expensive downtrend. And we're close right now. We keep kind of going back and forth around. I think we're technically in a downtrend currently, and you can use 200 day moving average, 10 month moving average whatever doesn't matter. But the concept is the trend following part helps to keep you out of not the five or 10% declines, those are meaningless. 40 60 80 90 percent declines and people are like 90 percent declines that doesn't happen well it's happened plenty of places around the world so uh u.s great depression was was well over 80. so you know i i think what the valuation does is it makes things vulnerable it makes it fragile and then to me that's a yellow warning light like there's all the stuff last two years we know SPAC bubble the sentiment going crazy, people trading these meme stocks. Like there's like 15 things, but the yield curve, like the final boss has always been trend for me. And so it's like yellow light, yellow light trend goes over. I'm like, I want nothing to do with the market cap weighted. You see now you've seen a lot of the expensive stuff get taken to the woodshed over the past year. It's, a lot of these stocks are down 40, 60, 80 already, but the market cap weight for the most part, hasn't really rolled over. So. Um, you know, to me, that's, that's the, the area that I would feel particularly nervous about, um, now you ready for some real astrology. If you go back to an early paper I wrote back when I wore ties and was clean shaven as a young 20 something, um, it was like, we talked about cycles and we said the four year cycle and the presidential cycle, you overlap those, you have this kind of four year period that actually has been pretty accurate in history, we are entering in may, I think it was like the worst six months of that entire four-year cycle so combining that with high valuations and a downtrend, you guys got to have me back on the fall when the s p is up 30 percent say, Meta, what were we talking about you idiot uh but i would be uh, particularly worried um at this at this juncture in history
2: i just had one more i would ask you about before i hand it back to justin and this is something that was sort of eye-opening for me in your article which is A lot of people think about cash as a safe investment, and particularly in the inflationary times we're in now, you talked about sort of how your evolution has been on what you think a safe investment is. And I think you talked about how Dan Egan has kind of helped you with this. So I'm wondering if you could maybe talk about how you view the idea of a safe investment within your portfolio.
0: Uh, this is a topic I find extremely interesting that only probably one other person on the planet does uh, and now you guys so so kudos must be me then as a, and, and by the way as I keep looking out the window I'm not distracted There's <laughs> this beautiful hummingbird that keeps uh nice. trying to get in on this quant discussion he seems um he seems oblivious to the dangers of expensive stocks currently so if you go back in history and you ask investors to say what's the safest investment they would take you know t-bills cash right and it's a great investment let's not Let's not uh, confuse that topic. But then I say, you know, on a real basis, so after inflation, you know, what do you think the biggest decline for cash or bonds? It's about the same um, has been historically. And the answer that most investors gave was zero to 5%. And I think the second biggest advance was five to 10%. And the answer is over 50. And that usually surprises people because they understand stocks crash and they can have big risks. They don't really understand that bonds can crash, but it's a different sort of crash like stocks, usually it's price-based real quick bonds. we'll we'll see what 2022 has to offer because it seems like their price crashing currently. Um, usually the problem with bonds is a long erosion of inflation. And so, you know, you have bond yields being below inflation, what a lot of people call financial repression, which is what we have this year. And you're not even floating above water. You're drowning, right? So that, that you're losing 5% a year on that investment. And so we said, okay, let's run a fun thought experiment. When you talk about inflation, which is a topic du jour now, but hasn't been a topic du jour for 40 years, and you ask investors, they always come back with like one answer and say, what, what's the best thing to p- protect against inflation? People say it's stocks, it's gold, it's real estate, it's crypto, whatever. But I said, you know. What about just like a global portfolio, buy and hold portfolio? Because all of those have elements that do well at certain times with inflation. Uh, and so we demonstrated in this article, the stay rich portfolio that if you look at the main statistical criteria, so worst loss over a year, volatility, drawdown, all these things on an after inflation basis. Um, you could come up with a global and then we just said like a global portfolio. So stocks, bonds, diversified, historically speaking, that is a safer investment than T-bills or cash based on these metrics. And it gives you a higher yield. So you add like 200 basis points or two percentage points of yield over cash with a similar volatility and drawdown profile. And people would say, you crazy, MEB? that doesn't make sense. So I said, theoretically, it's safer instead of cash in your bank of America, which gets zero, uh, to invest your entire cash balance. It may not feel as comfortable because you can look it up every day and it's bouncing around, but theoretically, um, and then, and then you can combine that. You can say 25% in cash or 50 or 75%, but just investing that portion has done a better job in history. There's zero people. And, and, and by the way, we believe this is true, not only from your personal standpoint, but also from a corporation treasury standpoint, what do all the corporate treasuries do? They just put their money in cash. The exception has been in the last year, there's been one other person who believes my argument, he comes to an altogether different conclusion, which is Michael Saylor. And he says, no, no, cash is not safe. And then he puts it all in Bitcoin. So that's a slightly different interpretation of the same argument. But so I've done this not only personally. I essentially have no cash other than just, you know, day-to-day operating expenses of, of the Faber crew, but, uh, we've done this with our company. So the company, um, you know, has its own unique risks and, and challenges, but we essentially put half of our, uh, company balance sheet is in Trinity strategies and half is in tail risk, uh, and ours is a little more nuanced, but for most people, just to think about this possible scenario, uh, is mind-bending enough already but it, it gets it often takes you a place that i think is liberating in the sense that you don't have to think in these pre-packaged boxes of what you know uh, is commonly accepted beliefs and it's hard once you go down this road to circle back and think in terms of of it cash being a safe investment in general but that it's funny how eight percent inflation uh, it starts to wake people up to this discussion than <laughs> they may, may not have had before.
1: Matt, I think, have we covered all the asset classes that are represented in your personal portfolio? I think we, we have it at this point, right? Not
0: even close, man. You ready? So, um, you know, as you go down the list, like there's the, the what our good friend, Wes Gray talks about is like muscle movements. Like what matters most for me would be like, can't be, but exclude that because most people you know, may not be business owners. And so the big chunks was the, and and by the way, underlying this entire discussion is probably the most important thing we haven't talked about yet, which is, I actually don't think it matters that much what you invest in over time. The decision on how much you save and when to invest in the first place, I think trumps everything else. So you start saving and investing when you're 20 is going to matter a lot less what you invest in, than you start saving and investing at 40, right? Um, you could just toss it all in some Vanguard target date funds and just watch the magic of compounding. Yes. Do I think it matters what you invest in? I do. But if you look at like the investing pyramid, what matters most is like, do you have some money to invest? Do you save that money? And then do you invest in the first part. So just being an owner of anything to me is like the giant elephant in the room, doesn't matter if it's a house, doesn't matter if it's stocks on and on. Okay. So that's the first part. Once we clear that, um, we talked about stocks, we talked about private businesses, we talked about, uh, Trinity strategies. We talked about farmland. Um, a lot of people struggle with farmland. So there's some online platforms like acre trader and farm together that are doing cool work. Uh, there's a couple of REITs, but not many, there's no real farmland traditional ETFs. Um, We talked about housing, which is by far the biggest part of most investors' portfolios. The problem is that one single housing investment is exceptionally undiversified and local, right? Like it's a very specific investment, which as we know can be good or bad depending on on what's going on in the world. Um, And then on and on. So for me, these get less important as they go down and it gets to this kind of like final fun bucket, uh, which is, is words that probably shouldn't be together when it comes to investing, but the reality is, you know, part of what I'm doing is, um, dipping my toe in areas I may not be familiar with, or at least I find curious. Uh, so I have a little fun bucket that includes things like cannabis, uh, investments that includes things like a couple random stocks. Uh, it includes things like collectibles, those, those comic books from the 1980s aren't worth a damn from when I was growing up or baseball cards either. But, uh, I, I did a experiment with some gold coins and very beginning of our opening the treasure box, beginning of our discussion, uh, collectible coins, uh, there's, um, uh, currently no crypto, but I own a fair degree of crypto startups. So more of the picks and shovels than the actual, um, you know, investment. I think that probably covers the vast majority of it, but, uh, I may have skipped over something or something else but that's, that's pretty comprehensive.
1: You're a, a curious person and you have, you know, a lot of, I think when we were talking before the podcast started, we were talking about different business models a little bit and, um, just kind of kicking the tires on some things. And, you know, what, what are your thoughts on, like, I started investing in crypto, um, a couple of years ago and it was really, cause I just wanted to understand what was going on. That was my intention. I had, you know, I thought this thing could go to zero tomorrow, I have really no idea, I wasn't putting a lot of money at risk. But I mean, that is something that I, I sort of believe in. And I see in, you know, your portfolio, particularly, probably with this with the startups, it's like, you know, you have an interest in those startups and those different business models. And yes, there's a financial aspect to it. But the only way that you're going to understand those in investments that you may not have really understood those business models five years ago because they were new business models is by investing in them and putting some skin in the game um, you know, with your own money. Do you kind of see where I'm going with that? And sort of, do you agree that for investors?
0: Yeah, so I mean, I, this reminds me of the old um, portfolio manager trick, and this may have been Buffett, I can't remember, but where they would essentially buy one share of stock. So they get the annual reports, which forces them to follow those companies, right? You have a very different, psychological attachment to something you own than when well, you don't. And if you think I'm wrong there, listeners, go go take a look inside your garage and look at all the crap you got in your garage. So um, you know, having an ownership stake, you know, may it you also biases you in a way that you need to be well aware of, right? Like you own uh, 80% of your portfolio in Dogecoin, you're gonna have a different, you know, um, mental approach to that. Now, the correct mental approach should be you spend all the time looking for uh arguments to the bear case of something you own or vice versa if you're short something most people just look for confirming evidence all day you know they go on twitter they retweet everything that supports their position but a good analyst or portfolio manager does the opposite uh but yes i think having putting real money to work in something gives you some incentive and some drive to continue to learn you know, crypto, as far as the global market portfolio, I think is like half a percent at this point and the least satisfying answer we ever give investors when they talk to me about crypto is I say, sure, put in like, uh, the global market portfolio amount, half a percent. And there's like, oh, like, a, that's not interesting to me. I either want zero or put like a, all of it in. Uh, but I would say the same thing with like any investment. And so I've, I've been a kind of sidelines, uh, cheerleader for the crypto space for a long time. I wish. Uh, there was lower cost accessible options than there are currently. It seems to be very high fee at every juncture, which, um, is unfortunate, but I, I imagine as the big boys get involved, that will mature. Um, but again, I tend to be more attracted to the actual cash flowing businesses themselves. So in the crypto world, to me, that is a more interesting levered play to the actual crypto investments themselves, but, um, but I'm not, I'm not, a uh, hugely opinionated on that we could, we could do this conversation in a year and I could say, you know what, I'm finally a Dogecoiner. So, uh, I, I think it's important to be, we often say this, it's important to be asset class agnostic and that's really hard because most people want to identify I'm a dividend guy, I'm a gold gal, I'm a, who knows what, um, But in reality, like every asset class has its time in the sun and time in the shade and and strategies too, that's us, us value investors can relate to that. I don't want to jinx it. It's been a a nice few months and and years, but before that it was a deep, dark (laughs) winter for all things value. So it's the same with everything.
1: Um, just two more questions here and then we'll let you go. Um, we wanted to ask when you think about your portfolio, the investments you've made over your career, what what would be maybe the
0: biggest mistake and what would you have learned from it? Well, part of the reason I'm a Quan is cause I, I, I made a bunch of mistakes and, and I'm sure I, I will continue. Now it's funny because a lot of people would look at a lot of my investments that have gone to zero as mistakes. And you know, I, I come from the standpoint that those are expected at this point. Like I, like I mentioned with the startup stuff. I expect there to be probably half that are zeros and actually like, you don't even really want the doubles, which is crazy for a public market investor. You're like, what, what what do you mean? You don't want something to double. It's because you know, that the, the 50, a hundred thousand baggers type of investments will, will determine all of your returns. So the zeros and the ones are meaningless. And that's sort of a Zen mentality, but it's, but it's reality. So people would say, are those mistakes? I don't know. It's, it's kind of part of it. And same thing with trend following, like. I don't know how, what percentage of your investments are going to be positive, but it's probably less than half if it's not half I and mean, it could be as low as a third. And so the majority of your investments are going to lose. We did a post at one point saying to, to be a good investor, you got to be a good loser. Look at the S and P there's only two states for that market. It's, it's a all time higher drawdown. And most assets spend like two thirds to 80% in a drawdown. So the majority of the time you're, you're, uh, losing. <laughs> and so you got to get used to it to be a good investor. You got to get used to losing. But as far as mistakes, I think a lot, particularly early in, early in my career, I proudly display as scars, uh, over concentration, betting too much for no reason. Um, you know, entering a trade. This is a big one, by the way, it's like 99% of investors we pull. When they enter a trade, they have no sell criteria. They just sort of wing it. They put all this time and money into it time to buy gold. Should I buy the stock on and on and on and on and on. And then they buy it. And then they're kind of just like, okay, what now, you know, like what? Uh, and so trying to establish sell criteria from the get-go, um, I think is really useful. Are you going to sell it based on time? Are you going to sell it based on, uh, you know, the fundamentals change? Are you going to sell it based on a trailing stop? Like, are you going to sell it based on panic? Which is what most people do. Most people were, or I think it's a Jerry Parker quote, um, basically says, like, you know, investors are quick to sell their winners and and hold on to the losers essentially till they go to zero. And that's probably the opposite of what you should do. You really want to hold on to these big winners and, and sell the losers. Um, and so I think some big mistakes I had early was was that, you know, I had established a position. The criteria would occur when I should have sold it. And then I don't, and then I just lose all my money, you know? And so coming up with with what we ask most investors, they don't have a written investing plan, which is crazy in my mind. Um, and so trying to at least come up with some broad guidelines and a framework for how to behave, I think is pretty important because at least it keeps us honest and share it with your spouse or parent or neighbor. I don't know, keep you, keep you honest on, on your investing diet would be a great way to describe it. But, uh, you know, if you got a bunch of donuts in the fridge and pizza, what's going to happen, you're, you know, they're probably going to get eaten. Same thing with investing. Like if you're left to your own devices, like you're probably going to do the dumb stuff. And we all have like, that's something to be proud of. There's a great quote. I attribute this to Mark Yusko, but I attribute all my unknown quotes to him. It's like Mark Twain. Um, he says, every investment makes you richer or wiser, but never both. And to me, that's something that I think, like you wanna embrace the losers and learn something from it, uh, as opposed to just trying to avoid them.
2: You talked at the beginning about the importance of using your portfolio to achieve happiness. And, you know, what we've talked about so far are typically positive returning investments. But, you know, one of the things i found, at least in my own life, is sometimes some of the investments you make that actually are terrible investments actually are great on the happiness side. So for example, you know, I'm really into racing sailboats. So a while back I bought a racing sailboat and you know that that couldn't be a worse investment. I mean, that thing is just draining money left and right. But it's it's you know played a huge role in the happiness in my life. And I'm wondering if you have anything like that in your life that maybe is not the greatest investment, but you think has still been a great investment.
0: My child. Okay, sorry, <laughs> not, not not appropriate. To mention. Certainly, uh, no. But like, uh, look, I, this is coming from a former boat owner. Um, uh, I can I can 100% sympathize with your um, your 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 sentiment. You know, I I think. Um, as i As I'm sitting here, staying at a relative's house, doing this podcast, looking out the window at a pool, that that's a pretty close one that comes to mind. Uh, a lot of enjoyment, but a soul-sucking amount of of uh, money just heating that sucker. Um I think that's life, you know, and and if you go to the end of the post we did, there's a George Mallory quote where it's like, "Look, the point of this isn't just to make money." to eat, make money, it's like, you know, you, you eat and make money to en- enjoy life and like figure out what life is for and what it means to you. And so if to each of us that's different, of course, what you're into, if, if it's sailing, if it's, um, you know, pursuing your passion with ser- certain social causes, if it's investing in kick-ass startups and help- helping entrepreneurs, if it's supporting the local food bank, if it's, um, you know, trying to, uh, be mission driven with your family, like on and on and on, right? Like there's, there's, it's different for, for each of us, if it's uh travel, that's a huge one for people. Um, I, you know, I, I think there's most money we spend, uh, the challenge becomes like, it's inverted with how, how, ha- how happiness actually plays out. So you nailed it with yours because um you're buying an experience it's both an item but really an experience it's the time with friends you're out there on the boat you're in nature uh and you think about what most people think about in terms of they think about what they want money for it's it's things and we've done a bunch of podcasts on the kind of the science of happiness and um it's funny because a lot of people who are poor who grew up without means or even those that did when they get wealthy all of a sudden they're like well what the hell do I do now Like it's a different mindset and spending it thoughtfully, I think is an under-discussed topic where people, um, often really struggle with it and doing it in a way that equates with happiness. So like, and, and we're, we really struggle with this at the Faber, Faber family, because the ideal thing you want to do with money, say you're going to take a vacation is you book it six months in advance, you pay for it ahead of time. So you have the fantasy of looking forward to it, all the excitement building up to it. You don't have the, uh, physical uh pain of paying for it at the time. You know, all these things. And we're horrible at planning ahead and, and doing these sort of things. But um I think uh, you know, there's been there's been plenty of my God, uh suboptimal and the efficient frontier uh things I've spent money on. I'm currently renovating a house. So you guys, this is a little too soon for me. This topic is a little too painful. Uh, you know, we we do this and in April, 2023, and this house still isn't done, like, you know, you'll know my answer. Uh, but, uh, but trying to renovate a house during the current inflation and supply chain, uh, situation is, um, exciting, probably the wrong word for it, but, uh, interesting nonetheless. I think lumber prices have come down a
1: little bit, haven't they? (laughs) <laughs> but there's still like a triple off the of look. Probably I top ticked it like that. Oh
0: yeah, like, right. Sure we, we, uh, <laughs> we hit it when they were at their peak. We'll see. So
1: we do uh, sort of have a standard closing question, but we're going to kind of uh, pivot a little bit to have it be around sort of your portfolio. So if you had to, this might be uh, tough to answer because I think we we've talked about a lot of important things, but if you could impart one lesson you've learned from building your own portfolio for the
0: average investor, what would that be? There's a quote we've been using lately, despite all the amount of time we spend talking about the future and forecasting and things people should think about. I think, um, the quote is, um, for most investors, it's better to be, uh, whip rip Van Winkle than Nostradamus, meaning, you know, what does everyone on CNBC do all day? They like predicting what's gonna happen with Google earnings or the price of wheat or what the feds going to do and is gold, a good part of your portfolio? Like all these things, everyone stresses about, but in reality, like coming up with a portfolio, particularly with public markets, like I want that sucker to be on autopilot. I don't ever want to think about my public market investments ever. Like let that thing whir in the background, little robot Meb 2000 and just be done with it. And, um, also like I see my cash account is like my investment account has a cash account, but it just kind of like hums in the background. And that's why some of these platforms like better I think are, are pretty great Vanguard has one too. Um, but essentially this concept of like, put it in there, invest as much as you can, where you're happy and comfortable with it and, and let it just happen in the background and forget about it and spend zero time, particularly in public markets and macro going back to, by the way, it's startups. One of the biggest benefits of startups is, uh, investing is it's the most optimistic thing in the world. Like, you spend all day, like, oh my God, these amazing ideas, these life changing technologies, these impassioned founders. And then you turn on CNBC, it's just like, ah, you know, just like bombarded with negativity and wars and pandemics, just like barf. Like, it's just, it's so tough. So to me, uh, spend less time on the like negativity and forecasting and future prediction business, which is impossible, and more on like, hey, I'm going to save, put it over here. And it doesn't matter what you own, I mean it does, but but it matters more that you save and invest in the first place. This concept, this ownership mentality, uh, I think is is important. So so be Rip Rip Van Winkle. I like to sleep. I like to take naps. So that's my advice. Nice. All right, Ned. Thank you very much. This has been great. Really appreciate it, man. You guys, it's been a blast. We'll do it again anytime. Uh, love to uh, hang in the real world. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carbono. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.